So last week, the title, and it was a part two, was something to the effect, Sin Makes No Sense. And the play on words was C-E-N-T-S in quotation marks. It just doesn't pay. It rather steals and corrupts. So that was the play. We also introduced, not that it's a new word, because you've heard it before, but we used it in the context of spiritual warfare and what God's intention is in granting victory to us in spiritual warfare. And that was the preemptive work of God. In other words, he goes in advance of the consequence of sin that's on the march to capture us, to ensnare us, ultimately to displace us and to bury us. And so God works preemptively in each one of our lives. He's on the advance. He lets us know in his word. He lets us know through circumstances, perhaps through other people's challenges in an area that we as well are able to identify with. And that's a good thing to know that God works in advance to guarantee our success. He's not interested in giving us over to the enemy. The enemy certainly has historically found his victims, but God also wants to be certain that that is not something we use as an excuse, nor do we want to have in those times in which sin has perhaps been what has ensnared us to be less than champions in what God has provided for us, and that's his word. So the situation that we come into with David's life right now is in what would be the apex, the peak, the pinnacle of, of his kingdom. At about 50 years of age now, he is very much established in reputation, in character. He has forged alliances that have guaranteed for him border pieces with skirmishes that he takes care of fairly quickly. We've seen him come through that militarily. But we also see in the closing of the chapter we took on was the consequence of being unguarded, which we looked at saying that can happen to any of us, being unguarded. And so one of the things we want to know, it's not how many people are surrounding you. It's actually the person of God who is within you. It's his presence. One of the things we'll find in a psalm, very well quoted and noted for David coming out of this situation, was what he thought concerning the Lord. And that was inventorying what happened to him and realizing that his sin was against God. In other words, he had the presence of mind as well as the personal sensitivity to know what he ought to do, what he ought not do. And one of the emphasis early on was in a phrase that actually became noted by many of you, and that was, is this not? Is this a not for me? Is this a not for me that I'm trying to make a maybe 
or a possibly or a yes out of. If it's a not for me, because God's word says that it's not for me, then I take inventory of it. Remember at this point of time in that early portion of 11, it was a, what you would call, preemptive word from God. So moving now in the close of chapter 11, what we want to see is now God, and this is what we want to celebrate, redemptively working for David. He preemptively was working for David. Now he's going to redemptively work for David. Do you realize that God works for us? There are a lot of people that we find difficult, if you would, to work for. But what if God said, yeah, you guys are difficult to work for. I ask very little of you, faith, the exercise of it, belief that you trust me in it, and you're just difficult to work for. That isn't God, though. It's easy for him to work on behalf of us because he does so with his love. If anything, it's a challenge. Can we love like that? As some of you know, you know the, a Christian university has been rocked by the recall of sin. What we seem to know right now, it's not the present tense condition of sin. It is a recall of sin. Somebody got into sharing with the world news community that sin had occurred that has not been denied but it had been forgiven is the world forgiving them no is the university forgiving them probably but administratively because of it it has cost the university and i don't need to get into it what i'm saying is it does have a consequence and it's sad, though, when there's an intentional effort on the part of people or, as we know, the enemy to take what has been forgiven and forgotten and to make it headline news. But that's one of the things that, as well, David will realize in this. Can we be those who can say, even as this closing in 27 says, when her mourning was completed, it says, was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, this is verse 27, bore him a son, but notice this, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Okay, the thing that David had done, even that has an ambiguity to it, but I appreciate it, because we've got all things that displease the Lord. Every one of us has some kind of a thing that can displease the Lord. The question is, what is it? But you don't need to publish it because God knows. The point in this statement is that everybody's got a thing that potentially can displease the Lord. The important thing to remember is that it is the Lord that can deal with the thing. He can deal with the thing. All you have to do is say, Lord, I got a thing. And I need to deal with it. But Lord, I'm weak. Would you deal with it? Have you ever found that when that thing has been presented before the Lord and there's a sincerity in your request 
that the Lord deal with it, have you ever found all of a sudden, maybe an hour or two or a day later, you're going, the thing, it's gone. What happened to the thing? What was on my mind before is not on my mind. What once was expressed from my mouth is not being expressed from my mouth. What my hands once grabbed for, they do not desire. My eyes, my ears, my heart, everything about that thing I'm free from. Don't know if you've had that. If not, I assure you, that is precisely what God does. That thing that displeased God is ambiguous because we already know what it was. Essentially, it was three things that violation led to ultimately a consummation. Covetousness, wanting what it is he apparently felt he didn't have. Adultery, wanting the heart to the exchange of a body part. That's his second area. And the third was simply what? He had committed as an act of a cover-up murder. And yet the Lord would address those things to all people in a manner that is somewhat as a parable in our lives. We all can covet. We all can commit, the Lord has said in particular, adultery in having our eyes focused and our mind lusting. And rather than the thing being dealt with, which God can do, it festers. It does what? It expresses itself in an action. One of the things that you might remember if you're as old as my, as I am, Jimmy Carter gave an honest transgression, a voicing. In other words, he confessed over public TV when asked, so do you ever, you know, lust in your heart? And he said, yes, I have lusted in my heart. And I don't know if you remember this, but it made public news, national, if not world news. Here's what it did, though. It wasn't that he was condemned. He was mocked for saying that he lusted, for being honest that he lusted. I have differences of opinion concerning many of the things, both politically and spiritually, that he embraces. Part of it is that, in my opinion, on the conservative part of biblical theology, he's not accurate in many ways. But on that voicing of honesty, he was chastised for it. He was humiliated for it. And that is one of the vulnerabilities that we have. The enemy of your soul desires to chastise you for your honesty concerning your humanity, to put you in shackles, to create condemnation, to vulnerably place you in the shadows of where you came from, and hopefully that you'll never want to return to the light it's why we closed as well in Galatians, saying those who are spiritual, restore those. We're to restore people. It can be hard. Why? Because you're linking with the irreputable. Oh, you mean like me? 
right? Aren't we all, to some degree, by sin, irreputable? We are. We might be able to clothe it better than some, but God wants us to have a connection that puts people in their most vulnerable condition at the foot of the cross. That thing is our thing, whatever it may be. And it's as easily taken away from us as it can be to hold on to it. We simply have to be those that say, in the confidence of the quietness and devotional time, saying, Lord, this is where I'm at. And so, Lord, I want to be at your feet. I want you to be ever increasing in my heart, and I want you to flood my mind with truth and light. The problem is, is that we get so compartmentalized, right? Men have been told that that was actually a, a phrasing that has gone out in terms of how men and women operate differently. And so men have been considered as compartmentalizers. We have little rooms that we open and close and shut. The closeted areas. The Lord says to us, I want access to all of it. I want the full real estate. By the way, that's becoming a greater challenge as well for sisters. But here's the point that I'm making entering into this. God is going to deal with David with a flash of revelation. The intent is not to condemn. The opportunity that God wants right now is to redemptively work in David's situation that he might finish his life, though it will have a harder finish, but to finish well. To be an example to others that would follow that will also falter. To be able to have a story that you and I can identify with and say, if God was compassionate with him, though the law would have been against him on at least two points. If you didn't know that, the law was against him on two points. Covetousness, it could have been paid for if it led to a thievery. But adultery and murder were punishable by death. David was redeemed from the law. The law purposes to assign as its consequence of violation death, which is why we emphasize the teaching of grace, God's grace, because we cannot keep the law. Faltering in one point of it, we violated all of it. We therefore move into condemnation and condemnation can only be satisfied in a sentence that renders us hopeless and ultimately dead. Chapter 12 is the meeting of minds and of hearts. I believe that it's a beautiful document. It is looking into a mirror because that is the way that the Lord chose to come to David. David. 
It's what you would call a parable. Why, though? David transacted conversations with God without the mystery of a parable. Here's what it's showing. Because God is choosing to use a parabolic prophetic utterance through Nathan, it really is saying this is the heart of a generation to come. They will no longer hear me. They will no longer see me. They will no longer sense me. I will need to speak to them in riddles and rhymes and visions and dreams so that those who are unwilling to change will not be corrupted to come to a relationship with me. They will not be forced. And that's why the parables are so important because they had such a mystery that needed to be unlocked by a deeper requirement of men and women, really, to want to know God's heart, that they got on their faces. They spoke with their lips confessions to God. John the Baptist would say to some in the audience, you're vipers. Who warned you about the coming judgment? He was challenging them, and what was their motive for even being there? And so we know that there is a coming judgment, but what we do know is there has been a coming Savior. He's here. He came. Never changed the course of his life, that our destiny might have a change for glory. So when you look at this, it really is saying, today there are people that by choice and willful heart and intent will not listen, will not see. They are stubborn, stiff-necked, and God will give them, if that is their heart's desire, he will make the pursuit of him to be that which they ultimately make because everything else has failed them. It's why you can't beat people over the head to come to the Lord. He doesn't want that. He doesn't even want you to threaten them. God doesn't want that. He wants you to speak truth to him. This is a time of grace. God's wrath is suspended, but this is what we say. He loves you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, even presently, with the fact that you are simply not there yet in faith to save you. The Lord sent Nathan, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, to David, and he came to him. This is important to note. He's an ambassador of the Lord. The Spirit of God is as an ambassador as God, as Nathan is to God. He comes to us. This is a great word for us. Where are you, God? He comes to us. Well, no, he missed my address completely. No, he didn't. You missed him in his knocking completely. Nathan was sent to David, and he came to him. And he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, 
which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. You can see the imagery, right? You can see it. David hasn't yet seen it. It to him is a story that is compelling his ears. Why? Well, he's in a position of authority. He actually is a supreme judge as a king over all his people. What he says by how he evaluates is the call that's made. He doesn't have to confer his counselors. He would be the chief counselor. But we do find him as one who always endeavored to consult with God. We do see that. So Nathan isn't one of these kind of like, okay, I'll give you a moment of my time. David actually was very engaged in listening to Nathan because David was a very spiritual man. When we come to church, the evidence of engagement is always, what do you remember about what was said? And if so, are you able to say amen to it? Or do you say, oh man. We have people that come to church and when they leave, it's, oh man, he went overtime. My burgers are cold. Oh man, they set the temperature wrong and I've sweated it out like a Baptist in a southern church. I knew I needed to come just a little bit later to make up for the time that he's going to steal from me at the end. So the point being made, and, and humorously, is, is this. We want to be those who are engaged in listening to the word of God. And if the best we can say, according to the word, is it is washing me. I will settle for that. I have a hard time being settled on him, but the word of God is washing me. I will settle on that. And then I will ask God to settle the things in my heart that challenge me for the duration, that challenge me on the explanation. David is all ears. And God knew that he could capture David's ears by presenting a hypothetical of an actual event. God knows how to capture our ears. He knows how to create a curiosity in the spiritual realm in which we will want to pursue truth based on how our heart evaluates what we hear and ultimately what God says about what we think we heard. The examination of David's heart is now in process. And so one of the things that we want to be sensitive to is that it's hard at times to want to endure an examination, right? The interview. I remember interviews which basically are academic or vocational, you know, checkoffs. They're looking at you. They want to know whether you can do what it is you're coming in for, the, the interview, the inspection. And that's why, for me, in some of those things, I can do well. But in some of the things that pit me against my fears, 
I don't do so well. If Chrissy says, I'm going in for an exam. Oh, to the doctor? Uh-huh. I look at her going, you good with that? Oh, yes. It's been a while. I'm looking forward to it. And by the way, I'm scheduling you too. I said, uh-uh, no, no examination for me. I don't have the courage that you have to be examined by someone who pronounces terrible sentences upon me. So, looks like you're about 68, uh, 63. Looks like you're bald. Thank you for telling me what <laughs> has been a challenge most of my life. You're kind of pale. Do you have sun damage? Yeah, apparently you see it. What do you want to do about it? I want to burn you. No, no, I, I've been burned before. I, I can't do that. Why are you here? My wife signed me up. Well, I'd like to examine you more. No, I, I just, I thank you. Thank you for concern. But I'll see you in 10 years at my funeral. You can say, I told him. We're just different, right? We're different. But in some ways, we are so similar because God knows how to capture our ears. And he knows ultimately what he wants to do. And that's to bring us to the point of redemption. Right? Redemption's a good word. When you collect all of those bottles and cans that to others is junk and in the way, you get some money back. Oh, you may say, but it's not all the money. Well, what if God thought that about you? I'm getting something back, but not all of it back. And you were cheapened because of that excuse. The bottom line is, is that you get some kids or some people that say, what I get out of this can, I am going to be happy with. And I'm going to do something with it. In essence, the redemption says that though no one may think much of us, and you may not think of much of another person, God says, I am redeeming them far above cost that any would know or could appreciate. I am redeeming them. And that's the, that's the goal of this parable right now, is to redeem David, redeem him. Why? Because God loves him. What do we know? He was displeased with the thing, but he takes pleasure in David, the king. Is that an oxymoron? How could he be displeased with the king while taking pleasure in David? Because he sees the humanity of all of us. We can displease the Lord God, but it doesn't prevent him from taking great pleasure in us and desiring more opportunity for us. He's a more opportunity God. He's basically doing this because, David, you got 20 years. They're going to be hard but it's paving the way for a lineage that's going to be exceedingly glorious because I promised you through your lineage would come Messiah, a son of yours, the son of God. And so even according to God's word, you need to understand that's the goal. 
is that God's going to achieve for what you cannot see something down line for what he knows. And it's going to come through people like you and I that could stand a little bit more history and the parables and the transparency and the evaluations, the examinations that we run from. I'm a runner from the examination. In fact, I could probably be a marathoner. I'm so good at running from the examination. I don't like being poked and prodded and told things about myself that seem to indicate imminent demise. Because I can already see it. Why do I have to be reminded of it? And then what's the solution? Really? You're going to take that out of me? You're going to scrape that off of me? Is that legal to burn somebody like that? I've been sizzled. I've had it done. What is it? Is it liquid nitrogen or hydrogen that they use? What is it? It's a stick. It's a swab, and it smokes when it comes out of a can. And, and then your skin just goes and then it's like they're thinking of a chest move that they're going to make while it continues to move into the lower areas of your skin. You don't have a lot of skin. At any rate, <laughs> the examination at times hurts. But they say the results, though, are good when you get through the healing. I do believe them for that but I'm actually trying to be more preemptive. That's why you always see me at these picnics and lake trips with my swimming gear on. <laughs> this is my swimming gear. Whatever I'm wearing that day, whenever Christy throws me in, this is my swimming gear. So the traveler again came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one of the wafering man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is the idea of covetousness, thievery, and what the Lord is also now going to equate to the lusting of David's heart. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Verse 6, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. God says that for whatever can incline a person to desire that which is not within God's intentions or desire, he would add even more to the satisfaction of that person's life just for trusting in him. Does it come out precisely the way you want it? Does it come out exactly on time the way you need it? It can be argued. I just know God's faithful and that is true. Why though is the Lord using an illustration in which seemingly a principle of violation has been used? What's a violation? Well, when Saul started off as a king, he multiplied wives to himself. That's evident. The culture at that time would have said, 
When a new king replaces an old king, he is the recipient of those who were part of the king's harem. And it's crazy because you're going, who needs another force of nature and spirit in my life? That's referring to the multiplication of wives. God says one is sufficient. More, you'll have challenges. Every man in the scriptures that multiplied wives to themselves had challenges beyond what God ever intended. But why did it happen to David? Remember, David was about a generation behind Saul. And so all David would have been able to know of is what this king established as what we would call precedence. That's why when a nation turns from principles to, if you would, um, violations against God's order, the next generation assumes it's okay. So after David, guess what? Solomon followed in his footsteps. And the lineage continues to go in the direction of 42 kings, ultimately between Judah and Israel, that fell on the propagation that there's no restrictions. And it stole the hearts of the kings. Just stole their hearts. And so the nation's heart was stolen. So the parable is intended also as a picture of what happens when hearts are stolen. A nation will suffer the consequence of thievery. So when you see laws that are being changed, defining immorality as moral, you have to be concerned about the consequence of that and needing to say, this is not right. What can we do? Well, the one thing that we can do is pray that hearts are examined and that we're not simply cavalierly good with it. We actually can challenge it. We want to pray for people to be raised up who can challenge it. But here's the redemptive solution right now that David will be able to cite because one of the principles that you see here too that's very interesting is when David understands this parable in terms of his flesh and he says with his anger that this man shall surely die and then in verse 6 he shall restore fourfold the lamb how can a man that has died restore fourfold that which was taken. The picture there that God is giving to us, you cannot restore yourself once you're dead. You have no opportunity to make up the time that now has been taken from you in death. It's a message of the gospel. If you're going to be responsive to the Lord, you respond now as one who under conviction of the Holy Spirit can say, the way that I've been walking, the way that I'm behaving, or even the way that I've fooled people is not acceptable because when I die, I have heard this to be true. The decision has been made by me where I'm going. God has already authorized me to live in eternity with him and fellowship with him. So David actually is picturing in what he is saying in what you would say is passion what God would say, you cannot be redeemed 
or make redemption once death as a sentence has been imposed. That's the message. You can't make up for it. We've got limited time. Praise God that our time right now, we can say, as believers, I believe this, that all of you have a saving faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. So our challenge right now is to take a message like this and in an examination such as we see, be honest. As I failed, I'm going to run into other failures. As I have had victory over sin, there may be a time in which I will be vulnerable to sin. But I know this, as Nathan came to David, the Holy Spirit comes to me, both precluding the consequence. He does it before the consequence. Because he wants to bless us and despair us from the ravages of the consequence. The preemptively working God, the redemptively working God. And David is able to see this in that which is reflected in the tone of his voice and in the evaluation. He sees in his own evaluation what God was trying to point out to him. I would have given you much more. Lord, I failed in that. So forgive me, and as I now open myself up to be restored to you, which is in this moment of confession, I believe that you will not withhold from me, even though there is a season perhaps correctively assigned to me. Have you ever been through a corrective season from the Lord? I have. I don't really think you ever get out of them, but the severity of them can be limited exceedingly. There's a difference between Richard William Ablett, that's all I would hear, and it was good enough to correct me, as opposed to the, oh, that special sound that was made when the belt loops from my dad's britches had that little resounding like whoosh. And they were good. <laughs> Richard, I need to see you. See, my ears already told me what was going to happen. I just had to come into an agreement that I'd go through it. Wasn't out running dead. I tried once. It didn't work. I crashed into the wall from the staircase that I fled down. He knew there was a wall there. Apparently, I didn't. He got me really good. Picked me up. And I thought, surely my wounds will be sufficient the bloody nose, the almost broken hands, the limp body. Surely compassion will... Well, it did pour out in a judgment upon my hiney. <laughs> it wasn't going to dissuade Dad from correcting me for what it was I did. I was responsive both to a voice that said Richard William Ablett and the other was Richard, come here now. much more. Verse 9 says, Why have you despised the commands of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. 
God is defining right now that in what David did, it was actually showing a contempt for God. That's what the word despise basically means. He was in contempt of the judge of the universe. Behold, I will raise up, it says in verse 11, adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, notice this, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I wonder if he had said that like at verse 7 if there could have been a change in the rendering of the correction I wonder if the sooner we say it the lesser of the correction Richard will you email that? yes mom I did it I totally broke it absolutely I shouldn't have had my hand in the cookie jar you know that I liked your cookies I'm sorry and I blamed it on Robert and Jimmy and they're innocent. Thank you for being honest, Rich. Is that it, Mom? Yeah. Yeah, honesty's going to be rewarded in this case. Dad, you good with that? Nope, but... <laughs> <laughs> because your mom's showing love, I will suspend the belt. I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. This is the key to redemption. He's put away the sin. Therefore, the penalty of sin, which is death, is suspended. It's an act of grace. David would have known that under the two violations, he was worthy, even as a king, of having the law in its favor to take him out. David is a living example of a man in which the prevailing grace of God will be shown to him in an act of mercy and grace. What does it mean when we receive grace and mercy from the Lord? It changes how we behave towards others. I am not saying that this by any means justifies the mindset of doing away with capital punishment. I believe it's biblical. I just believe we don't behave biblically concerning it. We have in these times in the area of jurisprudence and provable science, when there is a conviction by both observation and DNA, it's resounding and clear. You don't have to argue points about psychology or spirituality or humanity. If God chooses to suspend it through the law, great. We can make that presumption. But in this case, we need to understand this was extraordinary. And David realized it. And what it's going to do is have an effect on him that also will be of consequence. Because he will understand so much about what it's like being spared. He's going to spare the life of two of his sons that deserve the very same thing for as heinous a crimes against him. It's funny the way that grace works. That because of it, and the reality of it, and how much we appreciate it once we've received it, 
it can almost make us behave in a manner in which we will be taken advantage of. In other words, we will end up paying for it. But I would ask you to consider this. Didn't God pay for it with his life? Is it any small thing that at times the grace of God should cost you something like your heart? It can happen. And you may say, never again. And God would say, what if I had that attitude with you, Rich? At 31, you said you'd make no mistakes. At 63, how did you do? Ah. I don't think I did what I pledged, Lord, to you. Right. But I've done what I've pledged to you. My grace. Sufficient. Exceedingly deep. You can't outrun it. And you cannot beg for it. It's given to you. The redemptive work of God, but the corrective work of God now, we will see in the next chapter, closing off 12. And that's kind of what it is. It's almost like a chapter break right now. But I'm praying also that as, you know, this was considered today. Psalm 19, just so you can perhaps look at it and appreciate it. Verse 13 says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And that basically, by definition, is simply failing to understand and observe the limits of what is permittable and appropriate. It's real simple. What is permitted? What is appropriate? Knowing the limits. When we violate the limits, it's presumptuous sin. This has to be related to, as David penned it, the events that he found himself on several occasions messing up on. When he cites this, it's not simply relevant to this story. He actually erred in several ways noted by the scriptures. And so he was able to transcribe it for us.